Hello everyone, this is the supplemental lecture for week 7 of the COM 225 organizational communication class. This week we discuss chapters 7 through 8 in class, which have to do with written communication. Now in class we'll talk about various different conventions and ways in which you can approach writing. Today we're going to talk more about it on the organizational level, at least as far as the supplemental lecture is concerned. We're going to be talking about things like style guides and the like. One thing I'll note is if you're listening to the podcast of this, that's absolutely fine. That's why I put that out there. But you just might want to double check the visual lecture because there will be certain things as far as visuals that we'll talk about, you can really only get a grasp of if you check out the static version of the lecture, so the PDF version of the lecture that I'll post on D2L. Uh, just a real quick reminder, if you're listening to this before you get to class on Tuesday, we're reviewing for the midterm in class as well as discussing chapters 7 and 8. Topic check number 5 is due at the end of this week, March 3rd at 11.59 p.m., and next week in class, so on March 5th, we'll be taking the midterm. The midterm is worth 80 points. The study guide will be posted on D2L. So I highly recommend you check that out. And also, if you haven't already, attend the class where we review for the midterm. All right, so let's talk about conventions. Within an organization, there are going to be certain conventions that everyone is expected to follow, especially in terms of writing, which is, of course, what this chapter is about. We'll talk about visual conventions a little bit later on in the semester as we talk about things like the 60-30-10 rule and digital marketing. But for today, we're going to be discussing written conventions, which are defined as language patterns for a specific context or medium. Now here's the thing, organizations are going to have different conventions for different types of communication. Whether you're communicating within the organization or what we call internal communication, or if you're communicating outside the organization. So this is external communication. This is either the organization itself or someone on behalf of the organization talking to someone outside the organization. External communication happens a lot, especially verbally. We think of external communication as anything to do with sales, as an example. But also, we tend to write a lot to those outside the organization. Think about organizations on social media. If you're Chipotle and someone goes to the Chipotle and gets sick and posts on your X feed, you know, Twitter feed, Facebook feed, whatever, posting about how they got sick, it's important to have written conventions so that you know how you're dealing with these circumstances. And then also conventions have to do with the method of communication. So maybe responding on social media has a different set of rules than responding via email or sending out a press release. So there's lots of different rules that govern written, govern written conventions, pardon me, within an organizational context. So let's talk about some of the different ways in which we might be organizationally communicating through writing. The first I mentioned on the last page is the press release. Press release conventions are likely to be buttoned up. You're going to have shorter direct sentences, direct quotations. Usually these press releases don't run longer than a page. You can also have internal communication in the form of something like a team instant message chat, maybe through Microsoft Teams or Symfony or even a Slack chat. Any one of these can include jargon, they can include other characteristics of chat speak, and they can include shorthand, and you can get away with it. 
you're not going to post LOL, for example, in a Team IM chat and get get a lot of flack for that unless your organization or company has rules specifically prohibiting that. Internal emails are different because they may also include industry-specific jargon just because it's easier to communicate that way. It's easier to communicate through abbreviations and terms that everyone within the organization already knows. But generally speaking, your internal emails are expected to adhere to most rules regarding formal written language. And some organizations even have further rules for internal email. One organization I was a part of many years ago actually banned us from using the font Comic Sans in internal emails. Granted, that was a firm that did a lot of design work and such, but just something to keep in mind. Firms had their own regulations regarding internal email, not only being nice to other employees and all of that, but in terms of the language you use and how you make it look. External emails are different because external emails, it's assumed that you're talking to someone outside the organization. If they're not in the same field as yours, you might be expected to do away with jargon and adhere to the company organization's style guide. We'll talk about style guides here in a little bit. You're also going to have a more formal tone. Now, interpersonal messages or interpersonal emails may be formal or informal, like an email with your boss, for example. It, just depending on your relationship. So if you're sending an email to someone else within the company, it's an internal email, but you're just sending it to one person and you're asking them to go to lunch or something, probably going to be informal. But if you're sending an email to your boss's boss or to the head of some division that you're not really familiar with, it's probably going to be more formal. It's probably going to look more like that external email will. Let's take a look at a couple of examples. So this is an example of an email I received from a managing director of a real estate firm. So all of these emails that we're going to look at in today's lecture are emails that I've actually received. So this is an example of an external email. And what you see here is very straight to the point language. A lot of the language does tend to be a little bit jargon oriented. For example, we see the terms cap rate on the email, but this is largely because Again, they're sending it out to people that are within the real estate industry. So there is some jargon there, but generally speaking, everything is described fairly well. Other abbreviations we see not used. For example, they spell out vehicles per day instead of VPD, which is a very common abbreviation for that. And there are bullet points with highlights on the deal. What I want to draw your attention to is the signature. We notice that the signature is very long. It's got the direct phone number. It's got a cell phone number. It's got email addresses. It's got a website and it's got required license information. So this is a very formal signature here. It's very straightforward. There's no graphics. There's no goofy quotes at the end. It's all very straightforward. It is laced up. This is an example of an external email. Now, if we look at an internal email, you might omit some of the formalities here. And here we're going to take a look at an internal email that was sent uh, within employees uh, or between employees with a bank that I work with. And here we see bare minimum signature, it's simple name, uh, you know, the title of the person, just a direct phone number, no cell number, no email address, uh, no, no, nothing like that. And then uh, we see the address of the bank and that's pretty much it. So bare minimum signature there. And then there's slightly informal writing. If we look here, I'll read it. 
I just sent your email documents. It will come to you through our secure email service, SilverSky. If you're not yet seeing, please check your junk and spam folders. Now, again, in terms of what I mean by informal writing, if you're not yet seeing the email would be a little bit more formal, or if you're not yet seeing the email with the document links in it, please check your junk or spam folders as sometimes they end up there. So as we can see, slightly informal, a little bit shorthand. Please reach out to Rick if you have any questions. It's assuming that you know who Rick is and uh, how to access Rick. Whereas if this were an external email, you would say first name, last name, phone number, email address, and so forth. And then you notice thank you with the exclamation point. Again, very informal, not nearly as formal as that external email that we saw. Which brings us to different writing styles here. So as we talk about different writing styles that people have and that organizations have, we have three different writing styles that I want to talk about. So colloquial language is an informal conversational style of writing. So colloquial language is what you're going to use with your friends via text message. It's what you're going to use via a team chat like a Slack chat or an IM within an organization. You might have abbreviations. There might be regional characteristics popping up there. Casual language is a style of writing using everyday words and expressions within a familiar group context. Now, most internal emails are going to lean a little bit more towards casual language. And then formal language is a style of writing that focuses on professional expression with attention to protocol and appearance. These are your press releases. These are your external emails. Anything that's going to go out to the public, a statement, uh, anything with involving investor relations, that's going to be formal language versus casual language, which might typify some of your internal emails, internal communications there. Within an organization, oftentimes, there's not a large space to use colloquial language within a writing style. There are exceptions to this, though, especially over the last 20 years. We see a lot of brands use colloquial writing styles in their social media presence. So if you look at the social media presence of a Wendy's or a McDonald's or a Taco Bell, they're basically trying to be one of the cool kids. And to do that, you're not going to use casual or formal language. You're going to use that colloquial language, informal, conversational style of language so that you don't just appear as a button-up brand. Now, Wendy's and McDonald's and Taco Bell, they might appear that way on social media, but if they're doing a formal press release or releasing something to their investors, everything is going to be buttoned down. There's going to be attention to protocol, appearance, style guide issues, etc. And so those are the three types of writing styles that I want you to know that are afoot in some organizational communication circles. Let's take a look at casual language within another email. So right from the very beginning, we see howdy used as a greeting. This kind of veers on the colloquial language a little bit, if you will. And again, infield vernacular used kind of without explanation. This email says, uh, was a 2% wind and hail at the, basically the same premium. So it's talking about insurance. It's talking about wind and hail coverage, but they're using infield vernacular without any explanation of what 2% wind and hail actually means. So if you were sending this outside the organization or sending this to maybe someone you weren't familiar with, 
you're going to button it up a little bit. You're going to explain these statements rather than being short to the point and using that infield language like you would in this casual setting. Uh, this, by the way, is from my, uh, my insurance agent, Rob. So we exchange a lot of emails. He knows that I know what 2% wind and hail is. So even though he's sending an external email in this case, he doesn't need to explain everything and button up the language just because we're on very, very familiar terms. All right, I've mentioned style guides a few times. So let's talk about what style guides are. Style guides are documents that specify word and image treatment in communication on behalf of an organization. Think of them as a roadmap for how an organization should treat their brand when communicating internally or externally using written communication. Now, a lot of style guides have visual guides as well. And we'll talk about this as the semester goes on. Like I mentioned, the 60-30-10 rule. We'll talk about external communication, branding, visual communication, all of that in the second half of the semester. But the vast majority of, I would say, mid to large size organizations will have developed a style guide based on their marketing and communications goals. So if you have a different company take over your marketing if you're using an external company or maybe a different chief marketing officer come in, you may see a little bit of a change in your style guide. But when you start working at an organization, especially in a communication context, if you're communicating internally, externally, it's important to familiarize yourself with an organizational study uh, style guide. And I personally think, as someone that's a big fan of organizational branding, I think that all employees should probably check out the organizational style guide so they know when they're breaking rules, when they're doing things right and wrong, what kind of language the company wants you to use in all circumstances. Even if you're just working on the ground floor of a company, I think these are good things to know. And most organizations should be a little bit more transparent than they are about their style guide. Style guides, pardon me. Now let's take a look at a few style guides. This is the style guide from a university I once worked at, Pittsburgh State University in Southeast Kansas. And we see that they have regulations and requirements for just about anything that you could want. This is just a part of the style guide. Their style guide is many dozens of pages long, but we see as far as the university name is concerned, there are certain ways you can refer to the university. For example, Pittsburgh State University, Pittsburgh State, Pitt State, PSU, or Pitt. And then they go on to list non-acceptable uses. So for example, spelling Pittsburgh State University with an H at the end, so Pittsburgh, Kansas has no H, or Pittsburgh State U, that is prohibited. Pitt U, that's prohibited. Pitt State U, that's also prohibited. Or putting periods in between the initials. So P period S period U period, that is also prohibited. There's also a list of protected university names. So Pittsburgh State University or Guerrilla Athletics, these are things that are protected. So other organizations or outside companies can't just put them on a t-shirt and sell them without paying royalties to Pittsburgh State. That's part of the licensed marks and trademarks that uh, style guides aim to protect. And there's a bunch of information there about trademark licensing, which is in this case done through a third party. We're not going to focus on that part for this lecture. Now let's go ahead and look at University of North Carolina's style guide. Now University of North Carolina is a huge university, much larger than Pittsburgh State University in Kansas, or much larger than 
PPSC is, and we see that they have a lot of rules. I'm not going to read them all to you, but for example, they have rules regarding formal titles. So you're supposed to capitalize and spell out formal titles if they come before a name, such as Chancellor, Chancellor Guskiewicz. Now, in this case, Chancellor would be capitalized here. So you can see how if you were writing on behalf of an organization, it would be very easy to make this mistake and spell chancellor with a lowercase c. Capitalization is huge as far as style guides are concerned. And you'll see here that there are a lot of capitalization rules surrounding what uh, UNC has as far as their style guide is concerned. For example, you look at Bell Tower and they say, hey, Bell Tower is acceptable on the first reference to the Moorhead Patterson Bell Tower, but it says to always capitalize both words. So the first time you use the term for Bell Tower, you can just use Bell Tower. You have, don't have to use the names in front of it, but you do have to make sure that Bell Tower is capitalized if you're using that. And then one more page from the UNC style guide as we kind of uh, wrap things up here. This is for recommended words. Now we have rules regarding capitalizations, how to deal with people's names and titles and all of that. But style guides also have recommended words that they want you to use. Think of this as if you're familiar with SEO or search engine optimization, think of this as maybe keywords that an organization wants to find a way to shoehorn into their publications or the things that they're doing. So these tone words that you see on the screen, for example, genuine, steadfast, original, sharp, dynamic, fun. These are tone words that should be accompanying anything regarding the campaign for Carolina, or as we see above it, Carolina next. You notice strategic initiatives listed for Carolina next. And once again, you're using these keywords, discover, globalize, promote democracy, any way you can kind of fit those words into what you're doing on behalf of an organization, the organization will smile upon that. And this is something that you can kind of pick out if you follow the corporate communications or even the brand communications for a number of brands out there. Starbucks, an example we've used before in class is a great example of this. You can pick out words being used over and over and over again. And again, the idea there is for Starbucks to drive home this notion that, you know, whatever it might be, their drinks are delicious or fun or inspired. Same thing goes for the University of North Carolina, inspired, sharp, fun. If you can fit these words into a press release about something completely different, then you're in good shape as far as the organization is concerned. All right, so that does it for today's supplemental lecture, this week's supplemental lecture. Quick reminders here, topic check number five is due March 3rd at 11.59 p.m. via D2L. Next week, we'll be uh, conducting the midterm in class. That is March 5th, the midterm is worth 80 points. And the midterm study guide is located on D2L, both in the weekly content sections and in the assignment section under midterm. All right, that's it for this week. There will be no supplemental lecture next week with the midterm taking place. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more information as we move forward in the semester and forward in the textbook.